Welcome to Fostering Hope, a program that opens a door into the world of foster care and adoption, sponsored by Foster Adopt Connect. You'll hear stories from all facets of foster care, from kids who have experienced the system firsthand, from parents who are taking on the challenges and rewards of creating forever families for foster children, and from child welfare workers and policymakers who work within the system while also working to make it better. Besides hearing important stories, you'll learn how you can help society's most vulnerable children in big ways or small. Please welcome our host, the Youth Program Supervisor at Foster Adopt Connect, Nathan Ross. Welcome to Fostering Hope. I am your host, Nathan Ross. I am without co-hosts this week, um, but I know they're here in spirit. We are joined today by Sue Bedeau, who will be talking to us about transracial adoption from the parent perspective. Hi, Sue. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Great. Thank you for being here with us today as we start our next session talking about transracial adoption and how race and culture impact the adoption experience. So can you start us off just by telling us who you are and giving us some background information on how you uh, became an adoptive parent? Absolutely. Well, um, so as you said, my name is Sue Bedeau, and I live uh, with my husband, Hector, uh, over here in Philadelphia. We actually were living in New England uh, when we were first getting started on this journey of adoption. We both grew up in Vermont and went off to college still in New England, got married, and started living in Massachusetts. And while we were there, um, we had a passion for wanting to do something that was going to help vulnerable children and youth. We didn't really even know the language to, to use at the time. I had been a, an education, including special education uh, major in college, uh, but yet our awareness and understanding of all of the different uh, issues uh, related to, to children and particularly the whole uh, world that opened up to us, known as the child welfare system, we just knew nothing about at the time. But we... Um, we knew we wanted to do something to make a difference in the lives of kids, so we started attending anything where that seemed to be the theme or the topic, including a, an event sponsored by our church that was um, some folks that had spent the summer in India uh, repainting and just doing some things at a, in an orphanage there, and they came back with their stories and their pictures, and uh, that just got us hooked, and we said, okay, that's what we're going to do. We're going to adopt. And literally, we had been married very short amount of time. We had virtually no money except for college debts. And, um, and, and by this time, I was pregnant with our first biological child, and, and we didn't even own a car. <laughs> and so we literally walked ourselves uh, to the local um, adoption agency that we found, I think, in the yellow pages probably, and walked in the door and said, we want to adopt a child from India. I mean, that's how specific we are, <laughs> were, and kind of naive and everything else. And they probably should have taken a look at us and said something like, uh, that's very nice, sweetie. Uh, go away and come back when you are grown up. They said, yeah, come on in. We always need families. Let's talk. So they were very welcoming and inviting and yet at the same time showed us a picture of reality. They started teaching us about not only these kids in India that we had seen from that presentation, but what foster care was like in our own backyard and what sorts of um, needs there were for adults who wanted to step up and did you, you know, was it adoption, was it foster care, was it both? How, and we really started learning, and that really put us on a quest of lifelong 
learning uh, on not only building our own family, but what ended up becoming the direction we went for career and civic and community activities, everything just sort of, when that door opened to us, a lot of other doors began to open. And from that initial experience, we did become foster parents fairly soon after that to teenagers. And as I said, we were in our young, early 20s ourselves. Um, so that was eye-opening to yeah. foster parents to teenagers when you're, when you're barely two, three, four years older than they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, you know, some of the teenagers who came to us came with very different life experiences that we had not had any exposure to in our own uh, growing up. So, um, you know, they came with histories certainly of trauma, as we know now, but that wasn't really the language or that wasn't really being discussed much at the time. Um, and they came to us from different backgrounds, racially, um, in terms of their gender identity and sexual orientation, just a lot of different um, exposure to uh, life experiences and backgrounds that we had had little prior experience with. So, um that, that got the ball rolling, and we just really started wanting to learn more. We wanted to learn more about what could make a difference. We continued being foster parents, but uh, really began to notice, the again, the word trauma wasn't really being used yet in the, in the field or in mm-hmm. the world, but began to notice the impact of multiple losses and multiple moves and uncertainty and instability in the lives of kids that came into our home. And so as a result of that, we got really... Um, committed to the fact that every child needs a permanent family, a family to grow up in. Um, many years ago, I sort of phrased it that we all need a family not only to grow up in, but also to grow old in. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so we started really turning to adoption and seeking to adopt children that didn't have a family to return to. Uh, and, and for many, many years after that, I, I would say almost our, you know, 90% of our focus really was on adoption and Adoption of older children, adoption of siblings, adoption of children with disabilities and other forms of special needs. Um, and as we went further and further down those paths, uh, we also learned that, you know what, this idea that every child needs a family for a lifetime is absolutely rock solid, but it doesn't mean it always has to be adoption. Yeah. <laughs> and so then we started to explore, you know, is enough being done to keep families together intact to keep children in their family of origin or to restore those relationships when they've been uh, broken or separated by systems. Uh, and so we got more involved with understanding how to support uh, biological families and, and reunification and through all that became more aware of um, opportunities for kin and relatives and extended families to be part of the lives of children even when their parents might not be able to raise them. So uh, we really kind of uh, evolved in our thinking and in our lives. So over those years, we went from being kind of strictly foster parents Mm -hmm. to then really jumping wholeheartedly into adoption to then kind of um, moving between those worlds and getting more involved on the prevention and reunification. And since then, we've also become kinship caregivers to a few of our grandchildren over the years and, and they're very active supporting kinship care. So it's really been an evolving um, process for us both personally and each personal story or each personal situation has uh, helped us 
understands some of the historical context and some of the current policy issues, and so it has informed our, our passions as far as our careers and our advocacy and kind of our life work. And so you mentioned that you started out wanting to adopt from India, and then you talked about taking in foster children um, domestically who are teenagers. Can you talk, like, what helped you in making that transition? I know a lot of people who get into fostering or adopting, even if they're wanting to adopt um, from our own country, they're thinking small children, babies, or they're going to foster babies. How did you make that switch from an Indian child to a teenager here in the States? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, initially, even when we were thinking an Indian child, we were thinking of what, <laughs> in our mind, we thought meant an older child. Like, as, oh, wow. as I mentioned at the very beginning of our journey, um, I was pregnant with our first uh, biological child, and so we knew that we could have a child that way. So we were not pursuing adoption after a journey of infertility, as some people do. Mm-hmm. Um and so we immediately said, oh, so we don't, we don't need to get in that line. We don't need to be the ones that are saying we have to have a baby. We will, um, we will look to see if we can be a family for a child who might not otherwise get one. And that's kind of a little mantra we made for ourselves, a child in need of a home who might not otherwise get one or might be least likely to get one. And so we were thinking in our heads that, oh, that probably means older children. That probably means children that are not babies, probably even two-year-olds. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and really, I, I, it sounds silly and naive now, um, but at that time, I really thought, wow, if a child is already two and they don't have a family, that's profound and that that's, shouldn't happen and, and that's an older child. So we, that's what we told the agency, even when we were talking about adopting from India. We said, we'll take an older child, we'll even take a two-year-old. Mm-hmm. And and it was because they recognized our openness, I think, that they said, well, that's terrific, and let us educate you on what this idea of taking an older child really means. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they began to, they, but they never, the one thing I'm so grateful for that very first agency we worked with, um, you know, in those early days, and that very first social worker who has long since, you know, retired and passed away, but she was an old school social worker in a lot of ways, but she had certain um, uh, characteristics that I think are so important and I try to emulate even now. She never said to us, oh, well, there's not a need for that, or, oh, if you're not going to be open to this kind of child, then mm-hmm. forget it, we don't want you, or, you know. Um, and I know that's being extreme, but I think I see a lot of families that kind of get that message when they do go in and say, oh, I would like, you know, to bring a baby into my family I want to adopt kind of getting almost scoffed at or almost, well, that's not what the need is. And, and the door ends up shutting on them. Mm-hmm. And you might lose them as a resource. But this worker just really said, okay, great, that's great, that's what you're interested in, and come along on this journey and let me help you learn more about all the kids that are out there. So she invited us to events. I remember going to a night that was kind of like a movie night where some foster youth that were living in a group home um, and so- were, were part of. Sue, I'm sorry, we have to go to break, so I want to stop now so we can get to that story when we return. Uh, So as you continue to listen, we'll hear from Sue about her experience as a transracial adoptive parent on Fostering Hope.
Welcome back to Fostering Hope. I am your host, Nathan Ross. I'm here with Subido today, who is talking to us about transracial adoption from the parent perspective. Uh, so, Sue, before break, you were giving us some background as to how you and your husband got into the world of adoption, and you were starting to tell us a story. And so I wanted to give you the opportunity to go ahead and continue that. I'm sorry we had to cut off for break. Hey, well, thanks. Um, yeah, so I was talking about Mary, our first uh, social worker who really tried to bring us along uh, rather than um, kind of scoffing at how naive we were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she, one of the things she did was invite us to an event that was a movie night uh, with some kids from a group home and they needed some community volunteers and these were teenagers. And so that was our first exposure to, oh, older child doesn't just mean a two-year-old. Uh, then she asked us, would we be willing to do some temporary emergency care or respite for uh, other children in foster care while we were still working towards this baby from India, you know, idea that we had in our mind. So she always sort of continued to encourage and nurture the dreams and goals we brought in, but expanded our vision, uh, expanded our tent, as some would say. <laughs> and, and it was through that process, and particularly um, after we w- did provide emergency foster care for one teenage uh, girl, that we were just profoundly moved by her situation and circumstances, and we said, we want to do more of this. We want to uh, really, and, and we want to do this in a way that young men or ladies don't end up in this sort of emergency situation. Around the same time as that, someone who knew us pretty well uh, and knew that we were kind of embarking in this foster care and adoption journey uh, was a nurse at a hospital, and she knew a young lady that was in her, um, that was just, had turned 19 and had aged out of foster care at that time and was um, suicidal and had been brought in the hospital for that reason. And this nurse asked, you know, what can I say to her? What can I, how can I help her? And the young lady in the hospital did uh, agree to have a visit. And I said, well, I'll visit her. I can do that much. And I visited her and she, she made this statement that the nurse had been saying, we want to call somebody for you to release you to your wig when, when you're ready to get out of the hospital. And this young lady had made the statement, um, you just don't get it, lady. I grew up in foster care, and I ain't got nobody. Mm-hmm. And that phrase, and exactly how she said it, just really stuck with us. And so really from that point on, our passion of our life has been older teens and mm-hmm. helping ensure that older teens really uh, have that opportunity for uh, to, some, to have somebody, to not ever be able to say, I ain't got nobody. And, and that has really shaped our life and the decisions we made about which children we added to our own family as well as other uh, decisions we made about our career and so forth. And so how many children do you have? So our, our family of a lifetime, our lifetime family, which includes mm-hmm. our children by birth and adoption um, and lifetime you know, commitments, is 22. Uh, wow. All, all adults now. And we did have three that... Um, had terminal illnesses, and so they have since passed away. So we have 19 that are still living. Um, and all 19, like I said, are adults. And more than half of them came to us over the age of 10. Many of them came to us as teenagers. Um, so that's that's our lifetime family. In addition, we did, during those years of being foster parents and over the years since then, we fostered about 75 other children, and it was almost evenly split between um, teenagers, well, not evenly split, about two-thirds were teenagers, and um, about one-third we did emergency care for children of all ages, but uh, most of those younger children 
um, had very severe medical or medically fragile uh, challenges. So, so we did have even babies, but usually they were um, quite quite challenged in terms mm-hmm. of their medical condition. Okay. And so what is the racial breakdown for your family? Yes, I knew you were going to ask that. I had to actually write it down. I don't <laughs> think about it that way. But um, yeah. of our 22 that are, like I said, our lifetime family, our 22 kids, uh, nine are African-American, um, five are Latino, five would be considered Caucasian, and three would be considered Asian, but from different Asian backgrounds, including, as I had mentioned earlier, India. Wow. Uh, so that's the uh, official racial background. That's <laughs> Uh, background of our of our twenty two and uh, the numbers in foster care would probably be similar. Mm-hmm. Um, when we lived in Vermont, we had a lot of Caucasian um, youth because that's the broad population up there. And then when mm-hmm. we moved to Philadelphia, we had mostly African American uh, foster care uh, children. So it's it's been pretty mixed over the years, uh, and, and a lot of our adult children who are. Uh, you know, who do have children of their own. We have quite a few grandchildren. Uh, many of them have chosen um, spouses or life mates or partners who are not necessarily of their same racial or ethnic background. So sometimes our little family joke is that um, our children all look different racially, but our grandchildren all look the same, <laughs> 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 which is not exactly true, but we do have yeah. a lot of um, a lot of uh, mixed-race grandchildren. So. <laughs> so what barriers or opportunities have been present um, as part of a transracially adopted family? Yeah, you know, I was thinking about that, and it's interesting. Um, we are barrier breakers or barrier busters ourselves. I guess that's our approach to life. So we haven't seen much in the way of barriers, but rather as opportunities. But there was one almost barrier. One of our children went, who was very medically fragile um, and, and the East African American, when she was coming to our family from another state, um, children coming from one state to another in adoption go through something called the interstate compact where people have to decide, um, people in authority have to decide if they're going to approve of this adoption happening. And it was denied initially for her to come. And the reason that the interstate compact person gave was that um, white parents like us had no, you know, business taking a, a black child like her. Hmm. Um, so that was the first time we had an actual barrier to an adoption. Uh, we overcame, with advocacy, we overcame that barrier, and she she did join our family. Um, but through the years, we've had lots of different things that I would put more in the opportunities category because we've grown as people and we've learned new ways of thinking and feeling mm-hmm. and seeing the world. And um, I, I had a couple of examples I wanted to maybe share with you. One had to do with the, our very first uh, child that we adopted uh, transracially. Um, when he had his first encounter with being called a racial name uh, at, at school when he was a young elementary school age child, uh, my inept, now I know, my inept response was to immediately be consoling and, oh, and to immediately try to go to the positives. Um, oh, I'm so sorry that they said that because you just have the most beautiful brown skin. I mm-hmm. love your skin. That was a stupid answer, but it was a natural answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it came to me naturally, but it led to deeper exploration about that probably wasn't what he really needed to hear in that moment, and what is a good answer to a circumstance like that? And, and it, so it was an opportunity. It was an opportunity to really join and learn. Um, so by the time this same young man was older as a teen, they had a diversity day at his school, and um, his background is very um, mixed, and the diversity day really was about relationships between African-Americans and white 
citizens in their high school. And he came home from that saying, it's supposed to be about diversity, but it doesn't include me. Mm. They've got, everyone has to choose, are you black or are you white? And I don't fit into either box. And um, Soledad O'Brien once said on a, a program, and I, I just always kept this quote, I'm black, I'm Latina, my mom is Cuban, my dad is white. And I think when people ask me a question like, how do you identify? Mm-hmm. It's not really about the question. It's always about whose side are you on? Mm. And I think that's what was going on there for my son. And so that was an opportunity to really learn to explore, you know, what does it mean to uh, explore and understand your own racial identity and then to see, well, that's fine, that's my identity, but how do others see me? And then how do I respond to how others see me? Um, Sue, so, uh, so we have to... Lots of opportunities. Um, Sorry, we have to go to break again, Um, but when we return, we'll hear more about the stories and impact that your family has experienced and had as a transracial adoption of family on fostering hope. Welcome back to Fostering Hope. I am your host, Nathan Ross. I am here with Sue Bedeau today, who is talking to us about her family as a transracial adopted family and her experience raising her kids to uh, go through the awareness of being of a different race and how they've incorporated that into their family and beyond. So, Sue, before break, you were talking to us about a story from your son um, and Diversity Day, and I'm sorry we had to cut you off for break again, but can you just finish up that story um, for us? Absolutely. Yeah, so, I mean, it was clear that understanding diversity, understanding identity goes beyond just which box do you check or which mm-hmm. box do you fit in or even whose side are you on in any situations that play out. It's much richer. It's much deeper. It includes historic trauma. It includes, you know, how people see you as well as how you see yourself. And so that was really an opp- beginning of an opportunity mm-hmm. to continue learning about that. And I would say the other big uh, area of opportunity uh, that opened itself up to us immediately after one of our very early adoptions had to do with uh, response to law enforcement. Okay. Um, and this kind of gets into, I know we, we were going to also talk about conversations you have to have with your children, but yes. um, our, our oldest son is African American and he was a teenager when we um, adopted him and he already had a driver's license. And uh, he and I were driving, going somewhere together and he was driving, and we were um, pulled. He was speeding a little bit, but not much. Other cars were flying by us, uh, and we got pulled over. And we got the, the officer that pulled us over said, "You know, we were speeding, but we knew all these other cars were really flying by us." Mm-hmm. My son was being perfectly um, respectful and responsive, but I was getting really angry, and so I just yelled at this um, police officer and said, "You know." Did you pull us over because of the color of his skin? And we ended up, you know, finishing the ordeal there, getting our ticket. And we went on our way, but my son got really angry with me. And he said, don't ever put me in that situation again. You could have gotten me killed. You could have gotten both of us killed. Mm-hmm. You just can't talk to law enforcement like that. And I, that brought two things to clash for me. One was, first, I had grown up in a small town where, you know, police are supposed to be your friends. Mm-hmm. And secondly, I had um, this strong advocacy mode that, you know, if there's something in just happening, you right. talk to it and you talk about it. And 
this is the beginning of opening that whole door of how what has been the experience for people of color in our country and relationships with law enforcement and how is that going to influence the experiences my own sons and daughters have and my own responses and what we need to do and how we have to have those conversations on an ongoing basis. We still continue to have to have them. I have them even now with my adult children about issues they face with their children in school or in the community. Uh, so it certainly is an ongoing conversation, but it's one of those early ones that, you know, happened immediately, that circumstance happened almost immediately. Yeah. And luckily, uh, we were able to really talk about it. And so what do those conversations look like? How have they evolved? I know you mentioned earlier that the first time your son faced some racial tension, your response isn't one that you would give now. So how has that conversation evolved and what do you say to your kids? Yeah, so so now it's um, first acknowledging when things are hard or, or unfair, you know, really being able to say, um, you know, depending on the child and the age and the circumstances, I might even be as bold as to say, oh, that really sucked, or I might mm-hmm. be a little more gentle and say, oh, that sounded like it really hurt, or that sounded like it was tough, or something, but really joining with them in the fact that this isn't comfortable, this isn't good, rather than trying to brush it away, smooth it away, make it all, you know, it's not the boo-boo that you kiss and make it go away. Mm-hmm. Um and then it's talking about, um, you know, understanding the history, sort of what can we learn from this, where did this come from, what do we want to do about this, how can we plan for it next time this might happen, because it probably will happen again, mm-hmm. uh, what, you, what you would like your response to be. Um, oh, and you'd like your response to be that you punch that person out. Okay. Uh, and, and, and that's legitimate, that's reasonable, mm-hmm. but if you do that, what might what happen happens? next? Right. And, you know, just really kind of exploring it without shutting off any doors, but, but really continuing to ask, and then what happens? And then what? And how does this, how does this play out the next step down the road? Um, so those are the kinds of conversations directly with the kids themselves, while at the same time we try to join with others, others more in an advocacy role of saying, what can we do on the bigger picture in the mm-hmm. larger scale of trying to bring about a better awareness of race and justice and injustice in our community and in our culture because there is not this thing of colorblindness. You know, they really, and, and coming into any of these conversations from a position of blindness, so mm-hmm. to speak, ignores the history of race and the history of trauma in our country and it just, um, it does a disservice to our own relationships and our own kids but also to the kind of future we want to create. Absolutely. And so how have your kids responded to the, to um, conversations about race, culture, identity? What does that look like between the 22 children that you've had in your home? Because I'm assuming that those conversations will look different, but even your white children who have uh, siblings of a different race, uh, what do those conversations look like and how have they responded? Absolutely. Um, you know, and it really is different with every individual child and age. Mm-hmm. I mean, developmentally, development plays into it and um, their personal trauma history as well as just the broader, on the backdrop of the broader history. Um, but one thing is that how you have these conversations, it has to be very intentional and at the same time natural. Mm-hmm. You can't just single out a child and say, oh, you know, tonight we're having this special meal because it represents your culture. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, you, yes, you want to incorporate everything from foods and music and whatever art you put on your wall and, mm-hmm. and being intentional about the places you choose to go when you do go out to eat or when you go camping or the church you choose. I mean, we specifically stopped 
participating in events with a certain sort of branch of our extended family tree, we specifically left a church. We specifically changed our doctor um, in order to be sure that we were being intentional about engaging with people and um, and supporting mm-hmm. entities that that had the kind of message and the kind of values around identity and race uh, and justice that we wanted our kids to be uh, exposed to. So those were some specific um, decisions we had to make as parents and that we made them in a very open and honest way and talked about them with the kids. Uh, so it all ended up leading to, uh, just to answer your question, one of my favorite stories on that would be one of our daughters who is um, African-American and she was adopted as a teenager. And she was on a panel discussion with me at a conference and someone asked her, the question, uh, what is it like for you being black and being raised by white parents? Mm-hmm. And she said, to the, her immediate response was, my parents aren't white. And of course, I was in the room, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, people were looking like, oh, this poor child, she doesn't even know. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but then she went further and she said, no, you know, my, my mom's parents were from um, Spain and Italy and my dad's parents are French Canadian and everyone in our family has a history and has a culture and we try to um, learn about all of them and we try to celebrate all of them and, and we try to uh, understand that we're all coming from some different lifetime and, and mm-hmm. background experiences. Um, so I think that's the overall response that we have, you know, from our kids is that they feel confident enough in who they are, you know, that the um, son that I had that early conversation with uh, and then said that diversity didn't really represent him, diversity day, but then later in college he went on to become a leader in one of the uh, organizations, the multicultural organizations at his college. Um, you know, the daughter who was often embarrassed by us and sort of didn't want to be seen Mm -hmm. with anyone knowing that her parents were not of the same race as her, um, chose to go to a historically black college and really fully embrace her her history. And yet uh, she's probably one of the most responsive ones that gives us like the coolest cards and gift set holidays or whatever that say how much we mean to her as her parents. And so it's not that she had to cut off one relationship in order to explore another. Right. Uh, so those have been some of the types of responses, that, along with the funny ones, but those are yeah. some of the most serious ones. <laughs> and so you mentioned earlier that involving your children's culture into your life doesn't mean specifically pointing them out. And I think that's an absolutely great point. So how do you work in your children's culture into your family in a way that celebrates them without making them feel um, almost ostracized from the family? Yeah, I think the the key word for me is to be intentional and um, that it's really got to be part of everything that you do. You can't just have this one set aside day or time or in your house where, okay, this is our multicultural or this is our African area. <laughs> but, um, you know, that you're intentional about, like I said, we moved. We've moved from a predominantly um, white area that we grew up in. We chose to move to an interracial uh, neighborhood to raise our family. We, uh, like, I picked a different um, church to go to. And um, so it's those external things. And then it's also internally just overall how you... Um, determine what music you're going to play and what artwork's going to be on your walls and what stories you're going to read and what um, foods you're going to serve and just making it be part of the whole um, fabric of your family life rather than really 
one-shot things like like that, um, and 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 also continuous. That it's really an ongoing, and and that, yet that you have conversations. And uh, if if a child is ta- you know doesn't understand why we're doing something or so, that doesn't really feel like it represents anything that I care about. I believe in being willing to have that conversation. I wrote a short story for a series of short stories that was published. Um, and my story was called Emoja, but it really addressed these kind of issues we're talking about right now. Uh, as an interracial adopted family was preparing to celebrate Kwanzaa mm-hmm. in their home and getting backlash from, you know, one of the children's Sunday school teachers. And at the same time, there was a racially charged incident that had happened in the town. And it's kind of how this family coped with all of those things going on at the same time. And that's actually a perfect place for us to stop we have to go to break but when we return i do want to end with some tips that you have for people on how we can get involved and help kids and transracial adoptive families thrive so we'll hear more from sue when we return on fostering hope Welcome back to Fostering Hope. I am your host, Nathan Ross. We've been talking with Sue Bedeau today, an adoptive parent of a transracial adoptive family. And she's been giving us some insight as to how she's, she and her husband talk with their children about race, how they interact with their communities to encourage their kids to be a part of um, not only their community, but learning their culture and what that looks like. So, Sue, can you talk to us about why does this race issue matter? Why do we need to talk about race in terms of adoption and, and in general? Yeah, I know we've been pretty much talking about that the whole time, but I really wanted to just kind of hit on it a little more explicitly because often, generally, people who go into adoption or foster care are people with good hearts, with good intentions, Mm -hmm. with, um, you know, they want to make a difference in a positive way. But I've often heard a lot of people who say things like they're colorblind or they have no bias or they're not prejudiced. Um, I'm going to sort of leave that aside. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. I'm not going to judge any individual. Um, However, it's also not the point. (laughs) Um, There there are three different issues kind of at play that affect why this issue is so important. Um, There's there's both implicit and explicit bias, or the difference between just prejudice and institutional or systemic racism. Those are two of the issues at play, what's what's under the iceberg and what's over the water that you can see, so to speak. And then there's historic trauma and the impact of that um, on the lives of all of us in our community. And so even if you are a person who feels you see the world in a colorblind way or you don't have any prejudices, you're still impacted by implicit biases that Mm -hmm. infect our whole culture and systemic racism. And so you have to be able to understand that because we've all either benefited by or been hurt by um, these things. And there's lingering and deep influences of both racism and historic trauma that impact our children, and our children are going to live in that world. They're going to come in contact with both the institutional issues, and that's going to show up in how they get disciplined at school mm-hmm. or what jobs they can get or things like that. Um, but they also are going to run into people with more just outright prejudices, and so we can't go into this parenting of our kids from any kind of position of blindness. We really have to uh, understand both the history and the current circumstances that our real-life children are going to face in real life. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that 
that means that it's important to have these conversations out in the open and to continue having them. When I first heard even about how historic trauma affects relationships in a in a very simple way, this this little uh, anecdote that was told to me uh, at a workshop I attended once really stuck with me that um, two moms, one white, one black, were sitting at a school um, event about for third graders performing, you know, school concert. And the white mom was all excited. Her child was doing great and um, said, oh, yeah, there's my kid and everything. And then the black mom was really quiet. And the white mom didn't quite understand why her mom was hurt. She was so quiet because her child was doing really great. And so the white mom turned to the black mom and said, hey, your son is doing really great. He must have practiced a lot. And the black mom quickly shut her down and said, no, you should see him at home. He's a mess. He never does what I tell him to. And, like, seemed like she was really putting down her son. And this was in a workshop about historical racial trauma, and the, the person teaching the workshop said, um, first of all, all the black families and the parents and the women like, got this instantly. But, you know, that in days of slavery, um, if someone came along and praised your child, your child is strong, your child is doing good, your child listens, that was the child that was likely to be taken from you and sold off separately because mm. that was a good one. And so it became a norm of the parents of the children to try to put down their children in front of others, especially white people. Like, no, he's not really so good. You don't really want him. You're, you mm-hmm. know, don't take him You know, because he's a mess. He acts up. He's not as good as you think he is. And that that is a, uh, has become part of the root of a historical trauma that shows up in a situation like that school scenario. Um, so, so we have to understand these things and be able to have these conversations if we don't want to, if we want to kind of solve some of these deep-seated challenges and lead to a different kind of community that we want to have uh, and relationships that we want to have. Absolutely. And so we have about three minutes left. And in that time, can you talk to us not only in expanding the conversation, as you just have mentioned, but what else can the average person do to help families um, of transracial adoption? So I think the biggest thing is to to learn as much as you can by both reading and um, joining organizations and, and doing those other intentional things that I talked about our family doing, but even if you're not a transracial family, do it anyway. Think about where do I shop? Where do I spend time? Um, and then listen. The, the best thing you can do is listen and say, you know, what ask? What would help? What can I do that would be helpful? And, and the particular thing to learn about is something called microaggressions and really being, um, learn what they are and then learn how to not only refrain from doing them but to help others. So things like, can I touch your hair? Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, it must be so nice to have skin that doesn't burn in the sun or something like that. Really uh, learning the smaller things and, be, and educating yourself and then being conscious about those conversations. And then, of course, the other big thing is to be inclusive. Be inclusive in everything from simple things like birthday parties or, you know, neighborhood activities to when you are standing up at a city council meeting or school board meeting, Mm -hmm. uh, making sure you are uh, speaking up in ways that are going to benefit the whole community, including uh, being aware of how will this benefit children of color in our community, how will this benefit uh, families who are... Um, families of color or transracial families. So I think being willing to step out and step up and not just be part of the background uh, is really important too. Absolutely. So any last words of wisdom, what would you hope that someone would get out of this conversation that we've had today? 
I would hope that someone would get out of it that raising children and uh, a transracial family can be uh, rich and wonderful and it can be a great resource for many children, but it is not um, it is not always the right solution for every child, that there are many children that are going to be best uh, served in their own um, culture, and so we should support that whenever possible, but that if you are going to embark on this particular journey to do it with your eyes open, to do it with um, a willingness to be a continual learner, and to do it with um, intentionality about decisions that you make, and to expect to have fun. I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about serious things so far, but, you know, we've certainly had a lot of fun uh, in our life, and a lot of funny moments as well, uh, so, so to experience the joy as well as the challenges that, that go along with parenting. Do you have a final funny story that you could share with us really quickly? Sure, I'll share yeah. the quickest one. Um, okay. Our daughter, Trish, who is uh, African-American, was sitting on our porch once um, in, a, in a neighborhood, and two, she was eating a, a chocolate bar, and two little kids, she was in her teens, and two little kids that were about seven years old came by looking for one of our other children. These two kids were both white. And they wanted some of her candy. Oh, you got some chocolate for us? And she said, no, I'm not sharing with you because I ate too much chocolate when I was a kid, and look what happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> and these two little white kids, their eyes just got really big, and the the child of ours that they were looking for was one of our African-American children, and she went out, and we could hear them as we went away, like, if we eat chocolate, are we really going to turn out like you? <laughs> Hilarious. Um, so we've had those kind of moments um, that we talk about in, you know, kind of the broader context, but we've had lots of fun and funny opportunities over the years. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for being on with us today, Sue. We've really enjoyed having you and hearing all the conversations that you've been able to have with us about how you've your family has been impacted by the transracial adoption experience. So you've been listening to Fostering Hope, brought to you by Foster Adopt Connect, a comprehensive regional support and advocacy center for abused and neglected children and the families caring for them. To learn how to become a foster parent or how to help vulnerable children in other ways, please visit us at fosteradopt.org or follow Foster Adopt Connect on Facebook or Twitter. You will be hearing more about the transracial adoption experience on Fostering Hope.